why should the, the listeners tune into the episode that we just recorded today? Well, it was a fantastic episode. We go over so many things. We go over uh, conflict management and how to approach that. We go over a lot of mindset shifts around how to approach conversations. We get into some really practical how-tos as far as basic socializing and small talk skills and a whole lot of other really interesting tidbits throughout the whole thing. So I think it's going to be a really great listen. This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast, the neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Julie Crenshaw. Julie is a doctor of physical therapy and is a board certified specialist in geriatrics. She currently works in home health and is crazy passionate about helping the oldest members of our population and supporting the caregivers who help them. Throughout her numerous years of college, Julie worked in major department stores and even spent some time working for a collections company. She brings 15 years of experience handling difficult situations and diffusing conflict into every area of her life and wants to share that knowledge and experience with you through coaching and helping you improve your conversation skills. Her vision is to help promote a world that is kind, compassionate, and connected. And we're going to be talking also about her book. Um, She's the author of Navigating and Avoiding Awkward Conversations. So Julie, without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is the first show like this that I've done. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how it all unfolds. Awesome. Likewise. Yeah. So, so tell me a little about kind of, you know, where or what, what made you hone in on this specific subject of, of social skills, communication skills, like what got you really interested in that? Yeah. So, you know, like you said, I'm a physical therapist and I've just been on my own journey as we do. And, you know, you go to college, you get a job, you work the job, you try to not get fired from the job and you, uh, you encounter a lot of difficulties in the retail setting that, you know, you kind of have to figure out how to deal with somebody yelling at you and overwhelming you possibly getting really frustrated about little things like prices and coupons and all of this and calling your manager. And I did that for seven years. And and over that period of time, I just developed a way of interacting with the customers that kept things really pleasant and calm. I could kind of see some of those potentially escalating situations coming. And I developed a skill set to head them off at the pass Uh, in my book that that section is called just scan the coupon. Uh, And I did spend a period of time working in collections, a little bit out of necessity. It was pretty much a nightmare job for me because I don't like people yelling at me and I don't like asking people for things. So taking a job where I'm asking someone to give me their money and they're yelling at me the whole time, it's really a nightmare, but sometimes you just do what you have to do. And because I don't like conflict and because I would always prefer to have a pleasant interaction with someone... I really, really took my skills up to the next level working that job of how to take someone who is 
off the bat yelling at me from the second they pick up the phone. They're yelling and screaming, sometimes cussing, calling me names, and figuring out how to diffuse that situation down to a point where I could have a real conversation with that person and try to help them. You know, and at the end of those calls, a lot of times I would have people say, thank you so much. I'm sorry I yelled at you. You've been so helpful. You know, and that would always feel like such a win for me to be able to turn a situation around like that. And then working in healthcare, you often get people on their worst days. You get people, they're they're in pain and they're overwhelmed and they're scared and they're they've got a lot going on in their lives that's not typical. Maybe they usually live by themselves, but they're having to live at their daughter's house for the time being because they can't take care of themselves. And I work in home health. So I'm going to wherever it is that they are and doing therapy there. And so Matt brought up about a whole other set of skills, uh, sometimes related to diffusing tense situations and dealing with people who are very overwhelmed. But I also started having a lot of these recurring conversations around pain and illness, specific illnesses such as cancer and Alzheimer's uh, and grief and death and those really, really difficult subjects. And sometimes I found myself being the person who was facilitating these really difficult conversations between maybe my patient and their primary caregiver who could be a spouse or a child or someone else, and really trying to help the both of them to cross that bridge of being able to have that really difficult conversation. But these were all skills that I just developed out of necessity because of the situations I was in. And then at the beginning of this year, I got involved with a group of women that were all, all about the up level, whether that was trying to uh, go to new places that were exciting, whether that was better uh, destinations for vacation, whether that was self-help books, whether that was, you know, a preferred shopping place, just anything that could be new or different or better, just really trying to explore themselves and their environments. And in this group, people started asking all these questions. They would say, for instance, I went into a retail store today and there were no tags on anything and I got really embarrassed and I just left because I didn't know what to do. And so then I would respond and say, oh, well, in that situation, just do this, you know, and these sorts of things were coming up a lot. And I suddenly realized, I guess I have a lot more experience with this than I realized. And I guess the the skills that I've learned for myself could actually be more helpful to other people than I've ever realized. So then I started doing these posts that I called awkward conversation posts. And I would just present a scenario and say, so if you're dealing with this, here are some practical ways to deal with it. And it would always have what I would call the awkward comment and then a replacement comment of how you could enter these new situations that were novel and potentially intimidating or overwhelming and how to feel really comfortable and confident going into those situations. And then I kept getting all this feedback of people saying, this is so helpful. They would send me a DM and say, I look forward to your posts all the time. This is so helpful. You've, you know, you've really helped me to feel so much more confident in all these different situations. And, you know, one day I was driving home and I thought, I need to write, I need to write this down in a book. I need to put this somewhere where it can be accessible to more people because 
I feel like I really have something here that could be so helpful if people only knew about it. And I wanted to discuss some of those more difficult topics that were so close to my heart related to illness and grief and some of those really heavy, difficult topics. I didn't feel that those topics were necessarily appropriate to that group because that's not what that group was about. And I wanted to be able to discuss those topics on my own platform. So that was the inspiration for the book. And it just came out in September, so it's still pretty fresh. Um, but so far, I've had really good feedback about it. And then I'm just trying to, to keep getting the word out there because I, I, I know it's my book, but I'm pretty proud of it. I think it's a really, really good resource. Now, I wanted to ask you about when, when you were doing those sort of jobs, it sounds like the, the sales job along with working in healthcare, where you were uh, kind of put into situations and forced to have these sort of conversations that you didn't necessarily want to have that were a bit confrontational, <laughs> that uh, you were kind of put in these positions where you had to develop the skills necessary to do those jobs. Like, Looking back, what do you think those specific skills were that, that you had to develop? Well, I think I do put them under the broad term of dealing with conflict. The second section of my book is called Dealing with Conflict. And they are conflict management skills. But to me, it's not simply learning how to say this phrase or that phrase. To me, it is interwoven skills. So mindfulness, I know that you just had a podcast that was released where the, the woman is a mindfulness expert. And I loved the episode. She did a great job. I'm, I very much feel that being self-aware is such an important part of the process and being able to understand what's going on in your own body, what's possibly going on with that other person and being able to emotionally detach from the situation that is the key every single time is to figure out how to become emotionally detached from that situation because when you are being overwhelmed you are in a fight or flight response you just are whether you like it or not it doesn't matter if you're the most powerful person in the room it doesn't matter if you're the person in charge it's an animal instinct. When you, when someone is being aggressive toward you, your body will respond appropriately. Your heart rate will go up. Your adrenaline will start to rush. Your hands might start shaking. You start feeling antsy and fidgety. It just, it's a natural response, but that doesn't mean that it can't be modulated. But the first step to modulating it is to recognize it, is to be able to take that brief moment to think, oh, I'm having a fight or flight response right now, and I need to deal with that first before I can effectively deal with the person in front of me. And when you have someone who is being very aggressive to be able to recognize they might be the aggressor in this situation, but they are also in a fight or flight response. Their heart is racing. Their thoughts are racing. They feel, and they started it. So now they're, they started something that they're not really sure where it's going to go and it's creating a lot of stress in them. So if I can remain more calm and send these signals to the other person, you might be being aggressive towards me, but I am not going to be aggressive back. You're providing an opportunity for that person to calm down because you're showing them that the situation is safe. So there's a lot, a lot that goes into it, but as an umbrella term, 
I would just call it conflict management skills, but there's mindfulness, definitely mindfulness that's very involved, um, the mindset piece. And I, I also go a lot into compassion and really understanding that when someone is showing up so dysfunctionally, that there is an underlying cause. And if you, you may not know exactly what it is, but if you can gather a general idea of why it may be, then you can start to bridge the gap between not taking it personally because you realize that it's coming from something that doesn't actually stem from you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. So that's the first really important step. And in terms of that, you know, emotional detachment, it almost seems as if the, the person in an, in an interaction who's able to emotionally detach first or, or more so than the other individuals seems like they're really uh they kind of hold the power and not not in a negative like you know i you control the other person in any way but but in a way you you are kind of in control i guess of the conversation uh when you're not being uh you know the the person who's angry and reactive they're kind of in 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 a weaker position in a sense. Is that, do you look at it yes. that way at all? Absolutely. I look at it as grounding down like an anchor. And I describe it in the book as being the center of the storm. So the situation is very chaotic and you have to you know, find a way to come into the center of the storm and to calm yourself down and to really ground down in what you know to be true. So for instance, telling yourself, I'm not actually in physical danger here because that fight or flight response is protective in nature because you are perceiving that there's a physical threat. And so if you can tell yourself this person might be really angry, the chances that they're actually going to hit me are probably pretty low. If I can just calm myself down, then I can start to think more clearly because the other thing that happens when your heart is racing and your mind is racing is that you're not able, literally unable to think clearly. Your, your ability to reason and to think logically is diminished when you're in the middle of that response. So the more you can start to pull yourself down one peg at a time, calm your heart rate down, focus on your breathing, gather your thoughts, it does put you in the position of power because you are not being swept up in this energy that the other person is having. And I do also say in my book with compassion, of course, but I, I often regard the person who is acting so out of control, the way that you would regard a toddler who's having a temper tantrum. This person is yelling and screaming. They're kind of emotionally flailing about. They are not in control of themselves. They're definitely not in control of me. So if I can regard them instead of feeling like they have control and feeling getting swept up in that energy that they're projecting and realizing they might be the loudest person right now, but that doesn't mean that they're actually in control of the situation. I'm going to be in control of myself and we will get to the other side of this. And in terms of kind of cultivating you know, in addition to just what you're talking about with kind of taking a breath and um, kind of getting your groundings, like what, what else has been helpful or, or what else can we do to sort of cultivate a more kind of like long-term ability to be able to uh, detach more and, and be able to kind of be that uh, 
be that anchor rather than being so um, controlled or dominated by our you know, emotions, which are constantly in flux. Right. So one of the things that I try to always come back to is to ask myself the question, what's really going on here? Why is this person so upset? And if I can focus, I may not have it exactly right, but if I can at least start in the direction of trying to address the real problem, then I can start to pull that conversation in the direction I need it to go. So for instance, when I was working in collections, the company that I worked for was wonderful. I hated the job because I hated the nature of the job, but the company that I worked for was actually very supportive at a very thorough training program, a six weeks long training program, which is a lot for somebody who's really just an entry-level worker. And um, they would talk to us a lot about the person on the other end of that phone cannot hear what you are trying to say until they feel like you hear what they are trying to say. That other person is very overwhelmed. I mean, if they're late enough on their car payment that we are calling them, they are overwhelmed. Now, whether that overwhelm is that they just simply forgot to pay the bill and now they're stressed because they feel like they're in trouble because they're being called by the company. Whether that stress is that they just lost their job, they don't have the money and they don't know what to tell you about it. Whether that stress is, I had this happen more kind of shocking how often it happened where maybe there was a divorce and the car had originally been owned as a joint ownership, but in the divorce, the spouse was supposed to be taking over responsibility for those payments, but it was not, it had not been fixed, you know, legally on our end. So we're still calling this first person and their credit is still getting dinged. And you can only imagine how overwhelming and frustrating that is for them that we're calling them. And I mean, it's a mess. And when you can really give that person the opportunity to share their story and to share what it is that's got them so overwhelmed and you can express empathy or support or show them that you, you don't think that they're a terrible person, because I think at the end of the day, that comes up more often than you would think that people just assume that everyone else is judging them and that everyone else maybe hates them or thinks terrible things about them. And if you can assure them, I'm not mad at you. It's okay. I'm not upset. I don't think you're a terrible person. Uh, You can really help them to calm down because they stop feeling so defensive. Um, Something that will happen a lot in, in healthcare. So I go into a patient's home and I do my initial physical therapy evaluation. And part of my evaluation is trying to establish safety, um, very practical levels of safety, whether it's getting in and out of the shower or the chair. Um, But I also am responsible for assessing if there are other clinicians that need to come into the home, like a social worker or someone to help give a bath, something like that. And I've had this happen a few times where the person was told in the hospital, maybe that that home health was going to come out and that mama was going to get a bath seven days a week. And when I go in and they say, so you're going to send someone out here seven days a week, right? And I say, you know, no, I'm so sorry. We maximum send someone two days a week. I understand that that's frustrating if that wasn't what you were expecting. But if the person's response to me is to just start yelling and to say, this is ridiculous. 
That's why we picked your company. I don't understand this. What's wrong with you people? What's even the point? Blah, blah, blah. And they just start yelling. My first thought is, hold on. Why is this person this overwhelmed by this? Because really, that's a disproportionate reaction to that information. It might be frustrating. It might be disappointing. It might not be what they wanted to hear. But to get that upset about it means that I need to dig a little bit deeper. So instead of addressing whether or not we can send the bath aid out more, which is what they're focusing on, I redirect the conversation and say, you know what? You seem really overwhelmed right now. Is What else is going on? Because I, I feel like maybe I'm missing a piece of the puzzle here. Tell me why you felt like it was so important for the bath aid to come out seven days a week. Maybe there's something I can do to help you. Because maybe they wanted someone out seven days a week, not because they really wanted that bath, but maybe their parent has dementia and they just want somebody to come by the home each day to check on their parent and make sure they haven't fallen or that they've eaten or something like that. So if you can recognize this reaction was very disproportionate to the information that I gave or to this situation, and you can start to gently hunt for the real problem and address that, now you're in business because now you've addressed what that person actually needs. You're not having, it's so easy to get caught up in the fight of I'm right and you're wrong or well, that's we can't do that, so get over it or this person just blew up at me for no reason, it's usually not for no reason. There is usually a reason. And if you can help to get to the other side of that and figure out what it is and address that, you become that person's favorite person because now you're addressing what they really need. And now they like you, they know you, they trust you. I mean, at the end of those conversations, I have people saying, so you're the one that's gonna come out every time, right? because they feel really connected to me. They feel like I care. They feel like I am invested in getting them the support they really need. They feel like I'm willing to take the time to figure out what's actually wrong. And so that's how you build that skill is by first recognizing this is not a reasonable response. So something that is your flag, that, that is your indication. There's something else that I need to figure out here. So you know, putting on your investigator cap and trying to figure out what that something is. That's super interesting that it's like sort of, I mean, first, I guess you have to have the ability to not, uh, not just get so overwhelmed yourself when someone yells at you that you just want to be defensive and, and fight back. Right. But instead, right. as, as you're talking about, it's kind of like a, that disproportionate emotional reaction is almost like sort of a, a signal that there's something mm -hmm. lying there, like underneath there, and that you mm -hmm. just kind of need to maybe prod a little bit or take a look and see what what's actually under there, because it could be kind of the key right. to really getting getting to the root of their their problems and then fixing it. It sounds like right, absolutely. Have you ever heard of audiovisual entrainment before? Audiovisual entrainment, or AVE for short is a unique neurotechnology that implements flashes of light and pulses of tones to alter electrical and chemical activity to guide the brain into various brainwave patterns. It increases cerebral blood flow, improves neural functioning, releases parasympathetic hormones, 
which activate the brain's repair mechanisms and also releases a lot of feel-good neurotransmitters, including serotonin, dopamine, and endorphins. At Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro, we design specific individualized AVE protocols based on the original brain map to help regulate your brain's electrical activity. To learn more, check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com or listen to the podcast episode recorded with Dave Seaver, an expert on audiovisual entrainment. So, so Julie, I wanted to I wanted to ask you in terms of you know when I was reading the the bio for your book uh, on Amazon, the, the first paragraph really spoke to me <laughs> way more than I, I wish it would have. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it right now. So it's if you have ever laid awake in bed at night, cringing at the thought of something you said 10 years ago, you are well aware of the consequences of poor word choice. Why mm -hmm. did I say that? What was I thinking? Does that person still remember what I said? I hope mm -hmm. not. That, that described me to a T back. I mean, I, I feel like I've worked on kind of overcoming that, but gosh, mm -hmm. thinking about who I was back in high school, I mean, I'd be like replaying conversations mm -hmm. that I had like throughout the whole day and like thinking, why did I say this? Why did I not say this? Well, you know, and just, just a constant, uh, a constant cycle of that. So kind of tell me about kind of like what, I guess what what the problem is there and what the the remedy to that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I do hear people tend to identify with that one a lot. I think we've all been there. I do it. You know, I I don't. When I look back at myself in high school, I was pretty comfortable with who I was. I didn't have. I didn't suffer from issues with self esteem, or I've never been a shy person. And I still have moments that I can look back on in high school and think, oh my God, why did I say that? Why did I respond to that? And what I, in those moments, when, I, when I'm feeling that way and, and those little scenes kind of pop up in my head, for me, what I go through is a series of, of really practicing self-compassion, of realizing, you know, I was not as developed of a person as I am now. I mean, we know that, you know, humans are not fully developed until we get into our early twenties. And I think that having kids myself, my, my children are eight and nine. And it's so interesting to see the world through their lens and to see it, you kind of feel like you're on the other side of the coin. You know, you are the one going through it. And then when you watch your children going through it, you see it from this totally zoomed out perspective and you realize how young you really were. You know, you, you realize you, you watch a 16 year old, maybe you're in your late twenties or thirties or forties or fifties. And you see the 16 year old and you think, oh my goodness, you poor thing. You're so awkward, you know, or, oh my goodness. I know that you feel that way now. I wonder if you're still going to feel that way in 10 years. And you just have to recognize that although your teen years are so, so important, they, you really do form so much of your sense of self, of your sense of social success, uh, so many things about what you find to be important, you're developing the direction you want to go in your life. It's an incredibly important time in your life but you're so young. I mean, you really, really are. And to give yourself the compassion of saying, you know what? 
I didn't know what I knew then. I, you know, maybe you made a bold statement. That was one, that's the one that I cringe about. I was very big on just saying what I thought and giving my bold statements. And this is what I think. And if other people don't like it, they can lump it. And those are the moments that I look back on and think, oh man, I really hope nobody remembers that I said that. Um, But I have to just remember, you know what? It was part of my process, it was part of my development. I do spend a lot of time reading self, I love self-development books. It's pretty much the only thing I ever really consume anymore uh, besides textbooks, of course, thank goodness, I think I'm pretty much done with that stage of my life. But I just really, really enjoy learning more about myself, learning, learning more about other people, learning more about how your brain works and your mind works and how people work. And I didn't know back then what I know now, and it's okay. And I just have to give myself the same compassion that I would give to someone else. You know, you hear that advice all the time. Well, if it was somebody else that that happened to, what would you say to them? And if it was somebody else, you'd say, you know what? Yeah, maybe it wasn't the most graceful thing ever. Or yeah, you probably could have phrased that differently, but it's okay. It's okay. Just, just move on. It's okay. So giving yourself permission to just let it be what it was because you can't change it. Um, But the other thing, and I do mention this in the epilogue of the book, because the whole book is about kind of going forward. How do you, you know, be graceful in these different situations and how do you approach them with more mindfulness and compassion and with a better skill set in your back pocket? Uh, But at the end, I do acknowledge knowing all of this now doesn't fix something you said 10 years ago. And you may still have those moments where you cringe about it or, or maybe even people that a situation got so escalated that that person's not in your life anymore. And what in those instances, what I try to remind myself is that we are all on our own journey and we will interact with other people as they are on their journeys. And, and there may be times where for a time, your journeys are, are parallel, whether that's a marriage, whether that's your children, your parents, your closest friends, but not everyone is meant to go with you through every season of your life. And if you said something 10 or 15 years ago that maybe was so bad that it ended a relationship, I am a person who believes that the things that are meant to be will be. And if it was meant for that person to stay in your life, that ugly conversation would not have ended the relationship. But if it did end the relationship, then I just have to trust that that relationship was not meant to be carried with me beyond that point. And I just have to give myself the compassion to let it go. So that's, that's how I have to, to do in my mind. <laughs> right. And that's, that's super interesting to me that you mentioned about kind of looking back and, and maybe cringing at some of those like bold statements that you maybe have said back, like in high school, you mentioned, whereas for myself, like looking back, it was, it was the fact that I didn't speak my mind, that I didn't speak up when I did have something to say, you know, but I was too, I was filtering myself too much and was, and then, you know, would look back and be like, why didn't I raise my hand in class? Why did I not say, you know, how I felt, uh, you know, about a certain situation to a specific person, you know, so it's, it's interesting how that can just 
work both ways there with both kind of regretting kind of saying certain things as well as not saying certain things. Right. And for you, that was your journey. You know, your, your journey took a different path, but look at you now, you're saying all the things, you know, you've got a podcast. So now you have the chance to come back and use your voice to voice those opinions and to ask those questions and to make that commentary. So that that's your journey is that maybe you started out feeling unsure how to express yourself. But as you've developed as a person, you have created where you are now, where that's, I mean, that's what you're doing is expressing yourself and exploring those ideas and having those conversations. So that's amazing. So you can look back on that and just marvel at the journey that you've had in your own life and really appreciate the difference between where you are now and where you started. And isn't that wonderful? Because there are lots of people who never develop, unfortunately, that they they kind of remain that same person throughout their whole life. And they don't get the opportunity to explore these other versions of themselves, these more developed, more bold, perhaps, or maybe in mine, more uh uh, even killed and filtered <laughs> version of, of who they could have been. So it's really a beautiful thing that you've had that arc and that you've had that development. And so you can choose to look back on it and cringe, or you could choose to look back on it and appreciate this full arc of your journey that you've been on. And then to go, wow, if I've developed this much since then, what am I going to be like in another 15 years or 20 years? Isn't that cool? Doesn't that give me something neat to look forward to? Yeah, I love that mindset. Yeah. And, you know, another thing I, I guess I kind of picked up along my journey of just, you know, developing social skills and overcoming a lot of awkwardness I dealt with earlier in life, you know, is and actually something, you know, also related to the podcast. When I first started doing the podcast, you know, I was very very much like paying attention to, to myself and wondering, you know, while the other person was talking, I was wondering, oh my gosh, you know, when, when, when am I, when would be good to ask this question? Oh, they kind of already answered this question. Well, should I still ask, you know, I, I, I still be so caught up in my own head and also just, you know, in my personal life, I used to be so caught up in my own head, whereas I started being able to move more so into, let me learn about this person that I'm interacting with like rather than so much of the focus being on like oh I hope this person likes me I I hope the podcast guest thinks that I'm a good host right it's like more so like just trying to trying to and trying but like just shifting the focus from yourself more to the other person and figuring out what you can learn and and appreciate from that interaction I feel like that shift has been like instrumental in, in helping my own social skills. Yeah, absolutely. And what's neat about you mentioning that, I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the things that you can start to become a little bit more aware of, or just to entertain the idea of in your mind is that those difficulties that you're having, what if that other person is having them too? You know, because like I said, this is the first type of podcast this is the first one of this kind that I've done. And when I was sitting here and preparing and waiting for us to, to log on, I felt my heart starting to race. And I thought, isn't that so interesting? I was you know, excited to do this, excited to speak to you, really looking forward to it. But you do, you have those moments where you think, well, what if the conversation doesn't go well? Or what if the person doesn't like me? Or what if what, if what I have to say just doesn't resonate or it falls flat? 
you know, so it's interesting to think as the person hosting the podcast, you in, in my mind, you're the one running the show. This is your show. So it's really about whether you like me, whether you think that what I have to say is, is worth hearing and sharing and all of that. But it's interesting to entertain the idea that there's a possibility that you're feeling the same way about me, that you're thinking, I hope that I'm a good host. I hope that I ask good questions. I hope that they feel like I was well-prepared for this. And when we can look at each other in those more common ways where we realize that a person could be feeling intimidated by us. And I go over that in the book as well, because as the physical therapist, I'm coming in there as an authority figure, you know, and a lot of the times the patients are not as willing to be upfront with me right away because they don't feel, sometimes they don't feel like they have the right to tell me what they think or if they disagree with me. Most of my patients are in that oldest generation that that generation was very much brought up that whoever's the authority figure, you just do what they say. And so I've had to learn this skill set of really pulling it out of my patients. Are you okay? Do you need a break? Do you need us to sit down? Because at the beginning, I would realize, oh, wow, this patient is really out of breath right now. And they would tell me, well, you didn't tell me to take a break. So I didn't think I was supposed to. And I was like, what were you going to do? Pass out on me before you said something? So I had to realize I'm in the position of authority here. And if I don't communicate with them, then there something bad could happen. So now I make it a habit of just telling my patients, if you need a break, please tell me. I want you to take a break if you need one. I don't want you to get so out of breath. But as the person in authority, re- recognizing that sometimes you need to communicate with that other person what your expectations are, because they might be so intimidated by you and your real or perceived authority that they're not telling you information that might be very, very important to the situation. So that, that is, yeah, I can totally see that. And, and just what we we're talking about in terms of, you know, realizing that the other person could be, you know, having the same sort of fears or anxieties or, or worries as we are. I think that totally shifts everything, you know, when it's so much pressure to, you know, be thinking, oh, I'm the only one who, who is going through this and no one else understands. And I, you know, I think it's easy to, to sort of have that mindset, but then you start meeting other people and or just realizing that other people go through the same struggles that you do. It's just yes. not so readily, uh, you're not so able to perceive it because you're not, you're almost like too caught up to caught up in your own stories and your own issues that it's like, you don't even uh, realize that this other person is going through all the, all their own stuff. Right. And for, an, for another ex- example, I was at a social event at the beginning of the summer, and it was one of the, the first social events that had really happened since COVID had hit. And I was having this conversation with a local cardiologist, and I don't remember how we got on the subject because I hadn't written my book yet, but he made the comment, you know, this is the first social thing I've done in nearly two years. and I don't know what the heck to say to anybody here. I, he said, I, my social skills are honestly not, not great. 
And he just starts telling me this where he's, you know, he says, I went to private school all through grade school. As soon as I got done with private school, I went to this, you know, very prestigious private university, got his medical degree, residencies, you know, he had had his head down, working himself to the bone towards this goal from day one. And he said, socializing was really never on my calendar, really never something I did. I never learned how to be social just in a setting like this. I don't know what to say to anybody here. But what's interesting about that, though, is that he is a very prominent and well-respected cardiologist in the area. And if you were to meet him and he was being really quiet, it would be so easy to assume that he's stuck up or that he doesn't like you or that he's judging you or that, you know, some sort of negative perception because he's not speaking, I must be doing something wrong. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that maybe he is just really uncomfortable and has no idea what to say to anybody? So he's just keeping his mouth shut. What a mind-blowing idea, you know? It right. It could be so happened. easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could be so easy to get the wrong impression from someone. Exactly. So kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt when they're giving you a social cue that may be off is to stop and think, well, my initial thought is that maybe this person doesn't like me. But what if they're just shy? What if they're tired? What if they've had the worst week ever and the fact that they showed up was the best they could do, but socializing is just asking too much? You don't know. And so giving people the benefit of the doubt and, and having compassion for the fact that we're all people, we all get tired and overwhelmed and angry and emotionally spent. And maybe I'm not showing up as my best self right now, but that doesn't mean that I'm a terrible person at my core. So if you can really uh, tap into the humanity of that other person and explore some other possible uh, conclusions of what might be going on with that person. And that brings us back to what we were saying at the beginning of how do you emotionally detach? It's by exploring these thoughts in your mind that maybe your first impression of what was going on is not accurate. And maybe that's your own reflection. Maybe you were worried that people in that room would think that you were boring or that you were weird or that you didn't belong there or whatever. And so now every single person who reacts to you in a way that's less than favorable, it's, it's your own confirmation bias. You assumed that people in the room would not like you. And so then when they act in a way that's the least bit off-putting, it's confirmation to you. Yep, see, they don't like me. Well, what if that person's just having a really terrible day and they're, they're there, but they're not there, you know? What if, what if it's not as bad as it seems? And that, that is a really, really great practice to try to build into your life as much as possible. What if my initial assessment of the situation was wrong? What if there's something else going on here that has nothing to do with me at all? Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And in, in terms of, you know, uh, I guess just cultivating social skills and becoming a really good conversationalist, like what, what other components of that are there that we haven't touched on yet? I'm really glad you asked that. So I do have a free guide that I've created called seven tips to nail your next social event. And I created this guide specifically because I was getting so much feedback from people saying it's the small talk that I can't get. It's the small talk that kills me. 
And I was hearing people say over and over, I can get up and be a keynote speaker at this major event. I can give a presentation in front of investors and, you know, the, the highest level people in my company. And then when the presentation is over and we have to go into the chit chat or the little personal Q&A after, I lose it. I have no idea what to say. I don't know how to answer people's questions. I feel completely incapable. So I created this guide because of that, because I was hearing that over and over, because there are very specific things that you can do to cue to the other person what you're trying to come, you know, that you're trying to come across in a certain way. And I was hearing people say over and over that I, you feel fake, that the small talk feels fake. It feels forced. It feels unnecessary. Can't we just skip past it and get right to the meat of it, get right into the deeper topics. And so the guide that I created, there's also a video series that comes after that really, really helps you to readjust your mindset around how important the small talk is and how important those initial greetings are. So if I were to meet you for the first time and you said, hi, I'm Toby. And I said, hi, I'm Julie. There's a lot of cues. Your brain is wired. We are a herd species. We are animals at our core. Your brain is wired to pick up on a microscopic level every single cue, whether that's the tone of voice, the expression on the person's face, all of it to get an initial assessment. Is this person safe? Are they happy? Do they like me? Is this something I need to keep going with? So if I just said, Hi, I'm Julie. You might think, ooh, did I catch her at a bad time? Did I, does she want me to go away? Was, did I do something wrong? And you start kind of having this reeling that starts happening because that response was not giving you the impression that I wanted to speak with you. Maybe I did, maybe I was just nervous, but the way that I went about it put you off. So if you said, hi, I'm Toby, and I said, hi, I'm Julie, I'm so glad to meet you. How are you today? The tone in my voice, the warmth, the leaning in, the smile, everything that I'm giving you is giving off the same signal that says, I'm safe, I'm happy, this is great, let's connect. You know, so you, people don't understand, you hear the argument of the, the resting angry face, I won't say what it's really called, <laughs> uh, you know, but you hear and the argument you hear is, well, it's just my face. People need to get over it. And my counter argument is that might be what comes naturally to you. But the signal that you're giving to everyone around you is that you are angry and is that you don't want to be approached and is that you are not open to having a conversation with someone or that you're in a bad mood. You are you are radiating this energy that is unsafe. And if, if you're cool with that, then that's fine. But if that's not how you want to come across to other people, you do need to make the conscious effort to do something different. And for me personally, this came in the, uh, the form of crossing my arms. When I was younger, I mean, just standing with your arms crossed is comfortable. It just, for me, it is, it's the most comfortable way to stand. But I was constantly being asked, are you okay? And are you cold? Because that was the body language that I was getting off was that I was in a bad mood 
or that I was miserable in some kind of way. And so now if we ever meet somewhere and I'm doing this, you'll catch me doing this. Sometimes my initial response is to cross my arms and I immediately let them go and do something different with my hands because I realize that the body language is not doing me any favors and that I'm giving off a signal that's different than what I'm intending. So recognizing how important the body language is. And then as far as just social skills, uh, I have a chart because, you know, type A personality. Uh, I have several charts in that guide that go through a typical question that people might ask that tends to fall flat or be difficult to ask. And then a preferred question that you could ask instead that's more likely to keep that conversation ball rolling in a natural kind of way. And then I also have a, col a column for why, because that's me. If you can't explain to me why, then I'm not buying into it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, but one, one really good example at the top of that list is a common question you might hear people ask when you're doing this initial socializing small talk is, do you have any hobbies? What, you know, what are your hobbies? And truly, that's a really bad question to ask because people have a very specific idea in their mind about what constitutes a hobby. So if my answer can't be something like crafting or woodworking or tennis, then I feel like I don't have an answer to that question. And so then I'm stuttering and stumbling over myself trying to figure out how to answer your question because my initial response is to feel like I don't know how to answer this question. So if, instead of asking you, what are your hobbies? If I asked you, well, how do you like to spend your time? Well, that could be anything. You could like to spend your time volunteering at an animal shelter. You could like to spend your time reading. You could like to spend your time hiking with your best friend. It's such an easier question to answer because it's so much more broad. And so that is, you know, one way that you can ask a better question and then learning how to answer the questions better. So then at the next part, I take all those same questions and explain a better way to answer them. So if, so if you can understand that at its core, the purpose of small talk is trying to get to know someone. I mean, we know that, but if we can really truly process it on a really deep level, I'm trying to understand who you are. I'm trying to get a picture in my mind of how you spend your time, what kind of a person you are, what I could expect from you if I were to spend more time with you. I'm trying to truly understand, are you a safe person? Are you somebody that I can trust? Are you somebody that maybe you're trying to sell somebody a product? Well, people buy products from people that they know, like, and trust. If I don't know anything about you, it makes me really hesitate and pull back to want to collaborate with you on something because I don't have a good understanding of who you are. So those questions, are you married? Do you have kids? What's your job? What do you like to do on the weekends? All of those questions are really building a picture in that person's mind of who you really truly are so that they can understand, is this a person that I want to collaborate with? Is it somebody that I want to know further? Uh, is this somebody that I want to buy from perhaps? Is this somebody that I want to hire? You know, that's a big decision. You want to hire somebody and then you get them in there and find out that they're like a bull in a china shop. 
or that, you know, you hired them to do a position that requires a lot of speaking and they're actually very uncomfortable doing that. You have to get a better sense of who they are. The small talk is not pointless. Uh, and if you can understand that so that, so when you ask me, well, what do you do? And I say, I'm a physical therapist. And that's all I say. And you're sitting there going, okay, cool, cool. Um, all right, let me ask another question. And, it, and it's making it so difficult. But if you say, well, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a physical therapist. I work in home health, which is so fun because I get to see all, all of my patients. You know, sometimes they'll make me coffee when I come over if they know I'm coming or maybe they'll do this. And I can just start to explain more about my day. It gives us somewhere to go with that conversation. So understanding that it's not pointless and then understanding on a very practical level, some of the skills that you can use to keep that ball rolling and prevent those awkward silences that are so uncomfortable. And um, that's, that's where the practical skill comes in. So it's like almost like kind of answering questions with enough depth that it gives the other person some, something to kind of pick up and then respond with rather than just kind of expressing whatever, like, like answering the questions in a super straightforward manner, like, you know, what is it that you do? And you just say physical therapist, that doesn't, there's, there's, you know, they could ask another question as you were saying, but there's no, there's nothing else that could really be, you know, asked on top of that. Right. Conversation is like a tennis match. And if the person keeps, keeps catching the ball, instead of, you know, hitting it back to you, you have to keep starting the game over. So you've got to hit the ball back. You've got to give that person enough information that, that they have something they can say to it. And if you're just answering all those questions in these very blocked one answer, one line, I'm only answering what you asked me and no more, you are, you're killing it. You're not giving them anything to work with. So I have, you know, my patients ask all the time, do you have any kids? And if I just said, yes, <laughs> like, okay, well, let me ask you another question. How many kids do you have? I have two. Okay. And then the person starts getting the impression, do they just not want to talk to me? Why are they being so, so quick and short with their answers? But if they ask me, do you have any kids? And I say, yes, I do. I have two boys. They're eight and nine. They are such a mess, you know, and I'm not only giving them more information and giving them something to work with. I'm giving them the impression that I want to have a conversation. That, that is the other signal that I'm giving them. I want to have this conversation with you. I'm open to it. I'm in a good mood. This is safe. This is great. Let's keep going. And it opens them to start sharing. Well, how many kids do you have? Oh, I have four, but they're all grown now. Oh, neat. Do you have any grandkids? And it just flows. So that's, that's what you're trying to do is you've got to keep in mind, you have to give that person, give them what they ask for and a little bit extra. It doesn't have to be a lot, but a little bit extra, something that they can work with and something that signals to them that you are willing to have the conversation. I like that rule of thumb. Well, Julie, we're coming up onto the end of the show, um, but before we wrap up, you know, if, if you could tell kind of your, your younger self one thing, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of with, with socialization and, and everything that we've been talking about today, and if you could kind of just distill it all into like the, 
the most important point, what would you say as far as something that, that you wish you knew earlier that, that you know now? Well, I think the answer I would give would probably be different than the answer you might give your younger self. My younger self was very bold and very sure that I knew everything. <laughs> and uh, I was very insistent that if people didn't think the same way that I did, it's like embarrassing to say this out loud, but I really just felt like, well, if you don't think about it the way I think about it, then you're just stupid. I mean, that really, as a teenager, that was how I felt is that if you didn't agree with me, it was because you didn't know as much as I did. And so, so if I were to go back and put some duct tape over my younger self uh, mouth, I would say, I know that you mean well, but you need to give other people some breathing room. You need to understand that other people have different opinions that can be perfectly valid because they have a different set of circumstances that they're drawing from. And they have a different experience with life that's informing how they feel about things. And you should probably back off and not be so forthcoming with your opinions. Uh, and that is something we talk about in the book too, is not being quite so forthcoming about everything that you think. Got it. <laughs> and, and speaking of the book and, and you know, if people are interested and want to uh, get a copy or just connect with you, uh, what would be the best uh, sort of resources or links that, that they should go to? Going to my website is going to be kind of a one-stop shop because that's where you're going to be able to find <clears throat> links to my book or to my guides or to different articles that I've written. There's a lot of really great resources and information there. And so my website is yourconversationexpert.com. Uh, and then the book, you could search for it independently on Amazon. You could go to my website and find the link, but you could also search for it independently. It's available on Amazon and Kindle. It's free for any Kindle Unlimited subscribers. It's always free. And then I also have uh, produced it on Audible. And I'm the one reading the book on Audible because I personally really like to hear authors read books in, in their own voice and, and hear that. So it is available there as well. I'm on Instagram at Your Conversation Expert. If you want to check me out there, you're going to get a, a bigger dose of my personality because I like to go in a lot of different directions there. Those are probably the three, three best places to start. Great, great. And for those listeners who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And you can also find the audio versions of the podcast on whatever major platform that you listen on, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other ones, we are on them all. And if you guys have any comments, questions, suggestions, any people that you'd like to see on the show in the future, I'd love to hear from you guys. You could shoot me a DM at Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro on Instagram, or you can shoot me an email at Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast at gmail.com. So Julie, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and expertise. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time.